Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios right in the heart of New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. There's always lots of talk about what a melting pot New Orleans is. On this week's show, we're dipping into that pot and coming up with some very international flavors. We begin with Merit Kosha and Tyler Stewart of Plume Algiers. Although neither of these American born and bred folks have any East Indian heritage in their backgrounds, it was that culture and flavor that captivated the young couple. Their passion for the food of India is on display at their restaurant, Plume Algiers, on New Orleans' West Bank. Passion is certainly the driver behind Abigail Road Pasina's work. The New Orleans native has taken her cultural exploration to Lebanon and beyond, but has most recently concentrated her efforts on the Lebanese families who have called New Orleans home for generations. She's here to share her discoveries, and then, despite all the various cultural culinary contributions, across America, Chinese food continues to be a national favorite. Author Maggie Zhu joins us to talk about her book, Chinese Homestyle. Maggie sets out to make plant-based eating possible for takeout, dim sum, noodles, and so much more, all easily prepared right in your home kitchen. We're taking an exotic culinary vacation right here at home on this week's Louisiana Eats. Just across the Mississippi River from the French Quarter is the historic New Orleans neighborhood of Algiers. A short drive or ferry ride from downtown, Algiers is full of trees, quaint shops, and restaurants that garner a loyal local following. Among the newer restaurants in the area is Plume Algiers, which specializes in regional Indian cuisine. My name is Tyler Stewart. My name is Merit Kasha, and we are the owners of Plume Algiers. After traveling together in India in 2017, Algiers residents Tyler Stewart and Merit Kosha brought the flavors of the subcontinent back with them. First as a pop-up, and then as a brick-and-mortar restaurant, opening Plume Algiers in 2020. The word plume is meant to evoke both India and New Orleans. So we were trying to reconcile, you know, cooking Indian food in New Orleans. And um, this was just a word that had so many correlations with it that 
brought it all together for us. So yes, the bird of India being the peacock, um, peacocks being bred in Louisiana and a long history of that, and especially having them here walk around in neighborhoods in New Orleans. They do. (laughs) (laughs) And um, just thinking along that line and like beautiful colors, beautiful feathering, um, and yes, cooking with fire, plumes of smoke. um, It was just a word that really held it all together. The day I stopped into Plume Algiers, I found multiple plumes pictured on the large mural inside the restaurant created by the couple's friend, Jamar Pierre. It um, depicts all the regions that we have been to. Um, it's actual images that we took pictures of and we gave to him to draw. So when people ask us our story, which after they, our food they usually do, and we say we refer to the mural, and these are all the regions that we've been to, and we take them on a journey as we explain. Tyler and Merritt joined us in the studio to talk about their restaurant and the travels that inspired it. But first, I asked the couple to tell me how they met each other. Um, So we met working at a restaurant in Uptown. I was the hostess, and he was the sous chef, and that is a classic back of house, front of house love story. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We eventually left that job and decided to travel around India together. Why India? Uh, For me, you know, I I wanted to travel outside of the country and, you know, get more, uh, just relight my passion for cooking. And I really didn't know much about India. Uh, Merit was the one that kind of put me on to India and their cuisine. How long were you all over there, and where did you travel? Two months, um, and we went to 10 different regions. Um, It took a lot of planning beforehand to figure out exactly where we wanted to go. We understood that it was just a ginormous country, but we wanted to cover as much ground as possible. So we kind of just mapped out, you know, we had to fly into Delhi, and then we just made our way throughout, started at the north, and then went to east, south, and then kind of middle-ish and then back to Delhi, but uh, 10 different regions over two months. We didn't get to spend too much time in every single region. Sometimes it was just like two days, three days, but uh, some days we got to spend like a max like five days, but it was a lot at once. Was there a particular cuisine that attracted you out of those 10 regions, or was it all a delicious learning experience? It was a delicious learning (laughs) experience for sure. I think the, there were a few that stood out for sure, like Sikkim, which is in like the northeast quadrant surrounded by a bunch of different regions like Bangladesh, Bhutan, uh, uh, Tibet. So it really had a total different feel. It was like 100% organic. So that's where you got introduced to things like momos, chow mein, stuff I didn't normally associate with Indian cuisine. It was kind of like Indo-Chinese type deal. So I thought that was really cool. But collectively, we learned how... Each region is vastly different from one another, and that's what really inspired us, you know, upon returning. Yeah. And where are you from, Tyler? Where I'm from, from Massachusetts originally. I went to culinary school in Providence. I went to Johnson & Wales in uh, four years there. And it was fun at school, but I really didn't learn until, you know, you fully immerse yourself in a kitchen and you're getting screamed and yelled at and stuff like that. But India was really what, you know, sparked my passion for cooking once again. So tell me about how you all came to live in New Orleans. Well, we both took separate paths. Um, 
I just went on a vacation down here. I always looked at New Orleans like a dreamy place from Massachusetts where there's not much fun activities to do there. But I went on a cruise um, out of New Orleans with my friends and just spent two nights here prior to leaving and just fell in love with the city. Not that much snow, a lot of nicer people and better food. And Merritt, how did you end up here? Um, so I actually went to Loyola. Uh, I wanted to be a food journalist. So that's why I chose New Orleans out of the other cities that I could attend school in. Um, I kind of, you know, veered away from that track a little bit. I ended up studying literature and then also um, African and African-American studies and then was working on a teacher certification when Tyler and I took that trip and I just fell back in love with, you know, the food industry and wanting to be a part of that again like I had originally planned on when moving down here. When you were traveling in India, did you find people very helpful in teaching you how to make their food? Yeah, at first it was very difficult. We didn't know how we were going to go about this, you know, like language barrier and all that good stuff. But I reached out, you know, like 10 days before going to a certain region, reaching out to the people that we were staying at their Airbnb, telling them what we're here for. And they're like, I'll show you whatever you want to learn. And then going out to eat and just saying, I really enjoyed this meal. Can I come work in the kitchen? They're like, you can come back right now. Um, so, you know, and then when I was in the kitchen, it still was kind of hard with language barrier. And they had different names, you know, obviously in Hindi versus English. So it was, you know, smelling, taste, uh, and just watching it cook. Um, that was just exposure. And then, you know, I really learned when I continued to make these recipes here in America and staying in touch with the people that I made uh, relationships with over there. Isn't that one of the most magical things that you both experienced? Because you really didn't have to speak the language because food really is its own international language, isn't right. it? Yeah. yeah, I think that's something that we brought back with us to the restaurant now is, you know, all of our dishes are made to taste. Um, which also might be a fault of ours, is that we don't have much re we many, don't have recipes any recipes written yet, down. Yeah, um, which can be difficult, yeah. Yeah, but I think that also speaks to like our learning process of um, wanting it to be accurate based on memory, not necessarily measurement, um, and making it also feel to me like we're cooking something special every single time we do it. At what point did the two of you all say, we're going to have our own restaurant and it's going to be an Indian restaurant? I, I always told myself we, I wouldn't have a restaurant, you know, <laughs> just um, working as a sous chef as a, at a restaurant. You know, I, I just saw that I was like, I don't, I don't know if I want to do this, you know. But being a pop-up as we were for a while and just, you know, cooking on the street and making like 80 bucks here and there. We were literally frying dumplings on the street one time in the rain. Yeah, I was, I was rolling them to, to order like on the curb, you know, and it was, that's how inspired we really were. Um, but we wanted just we wanted a little more sustainable uh, business plan. Yeah, basically we were dedicating all of our time to this love and um you know when you do that that means you're not making any money otherwise <laughs> because you you don't have an, any other really jobs mm -hmm. um i mean actually you know we were working three jobs between the two of us while doing the pop-ups simultaneously which of course you know pop-ups for the most part go into a late night i would work a 7 a.m shift the next day Ooh. and um it was just becoming a lot 
And so eventually we had to sit down and think, okay, if this is a passion that we want to pursue or we want to learn more about, what is the best way that we can do this? And we had always talked about wanting to have our own food, just a general food establishment in our neighborhood, which at that point was Algiers. And this building, just a few blocks away from where we were living, came up for sale. Yeah, and it had same an thing apartment. Was meant to be. Yeah, well, it had an apartment in the back and the restaurant space in the front. And it was small and it seemed manageable. Um, so we went in on it and we bought the building. All of a sudden, you have a new restaurant and Merritt, you discover you're going to have a bay. <laughs> when we bought the restaurant, the first thing my dad said to us was, okay, now don't get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> he reminds me of it. He's like, I told you. Yeah, told you, he tells tell us all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, what I didn't mention before, I guess, is that the building, while it had an apartment in the back, it is a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> Perfect for a couple. <laughs> um so that has definitely presented a challenge, but um, not only just like, of course, the living quarters being tight now, but yeah, the um, daycare situation, not expecting to have to deal with the financial responsibility of having a child so suddenly into buying a restaurant where we're not necessarily getting paid um, was a lot. Um, luckily, my mom was able to come down here and stay down for the first month of him being born. Um, she was able to work remotely and take care of him. But after that first month, uh, he was strapped to me. <laughs> <laughs> but just the lack of sleep alone was something that Lack was, of sleep was the killer, you Yeah, know. very difficult to deal with. Yeah. Um, there were times where it was so stressful that we're like, you know, should we just take a break for a little bit or just reconsider this because we're just killing ourselves making no money and you know we don't want to break up our relationship but there were a few times where we were just like my god this is crazy um but i think that also within this time we kind of took advantage of the situation of covid and how restaurants were transitioning from you know okay well we're open on the inside okay now we're to go only using that as an opportunity to say we need to create some boundaries for our life here. Um, at one point, we did feel like it was too much having the baby strapped to me during service, and we transitioned back to to-go only um, and would have him in the restaurant in his giant playpen, which I think you saw. Yes. Um, but, you know, also realizing that switching around like that is not great for customers. Um, it gets everybody confused about what's going on. Um, yeah, a lot of people would walk in too, like, you guys open? You know, seeing the baby yeah. on the floor. I'm like, yeah, yeah, uh, Put, yeah place your on. order with him. <laughs> yeah. um, and that got difficult at times, whereas he got bigger and wanted to move around, you know, he'd want to be taken out of his pen. Uh, so that's when you would you saw me, like, you know, holding him, then I'd pass him off. She would place the order, put the order in, and then when I have to start cooking, pass back to it. So it was like a hot potato, you know? Yeah, he was a little hot potato. <laughs> What's the baby's name? Jules. So what has the reaction to your food been? Have you had any East Indians in to dine? Oh, yeah. We definitely get um, Indian people in, in the restaurant. And yeah, they they trust us now. But there there was a time before where they would come in, they would see who's cooking the food, and they would be like... And they would just order just lentils and bread and, like, one other thing for, like, a six top or seven mm -hmm. people. 
and then they would eat it, and then they would reorder again. It was like just checking us first, yeah. and then they want to hear our story and how did you, you know, learn this stuff. So yeah. that's been good to have a great rapport with them. Yeah. That was Tyler Stewart and Merritt Kosha of Plume Algiers in New Orleans. Coming up next, we're joined by Abigail Rode Pasina. Her new exhibit at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is called A Syrian Lebanese American Kitchen. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Hi, I'm Abigail Rode Pausina, and I'm the curator of a Syrian-Lebanese American kitchen, an exhibit at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Everyone knows about New Orleans' French Quarter, you may have even heard of the Irish Channel and the German Coast. But starting in the late 19th century, Louisiana also became home to immigrants from what was then called Ottoman Syria, the region that is now Syria and Lebanon. Native New Orleanian Abigail Rode Pausina can trace her family's history back to that first wave of settlers. Upon arrival, her great-great-grandparents made their way south to New Iberia before settling permanently in New Orleans, where they ran a dry goods store in the quarter. The story of Abigail's family is just one part of her new exhibit, a Syrian-Lebanese-American kitchen now on display at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Abigail interviewed over a dozen participants from Syrian and Lebanese families to tell their story and explore cultural connections through food. Abby, you are just 
blowing my mind. This old, lifelong New Orleanian, when you reached out to me and I examined my memory, I really am not aware of the Syrian-Lebanese community in New Orleans. Would you please share with us your family's story? Absolutely. So I'm a lifelong New Orleanian as well. Um, I'm a fifth generation Syrian American. My great great grandparents, who were named Khalil and Emily Sliman, Sliman, um, immigrated to the United States in 1897. And that was a, a big time for like a big first wave of Syrian and Lebanese immigrants to the U.S. That's so interesting to me because at the same time they came to New Orleans. You know, what we know about and what we hear about are the Sicilians. How were the Syrian Lebanese lost in that immigration story? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, there's a lot of different theories out there. In my research, I've come across some ideas that the smaller numbers contributed to it. And also, when they arrived through Ellis Island, they spread all over the country. They were peddlers. They traveled along the railroad tracks and down the rivers. And I think a lot of them were drawn to New Orleans because they either already had family members or friends here, or maybe the French connection from the colonial influence back in Syria and Lebanon that was attractive here in New Orleans. Similar climate, similar religious practices. New Orleans has always been a very Catholic city, and many of these people who came over were devout Marianite or Orthodox Christians. And so they just sort of transitioned right into the New Orleanian way of life. Did these people then find a place in the Greek Orthodox Church? Some did. Um, a lot just converted straight to Roman Catholicism because there wasn't a Marianite church here. And I don't believe the Greek Orthodox Church opened here until later. So they probably practiced personally or just converted to Roman Catholicism. Because it is prevalent. Yes. <laughs> now, one of the really interesting things that we discussed is the reason that their culture got kind of stashed. Why would they have hidden their heritage? Yeah, I think there was always that tension between maintaining, in, in any immigrant community, maintaining your cultural heritage, but also wanting to assimilate to your new way of life. And the Syrian and Lebanese families who came here were very good at assimilating and be, you know, becoming American. My grandmother, for instance, um, they named her Shirley. They didn't teach her to speak Arabic fluently. Her parents would speak Arabic to each other when they didn't want the kids to know what they were saying. Um, and they really just wanted her to be American because that was the American dream that they were after. But the cultural traditions that were most important to them, and that's what I've come across in my research, the ones that did get passed down, of course, was the food and the cooking. The kibbe. The kibbe, the meshi, <laughs> yes, the tabbouli. I mean, I'm a fifth generation, like I said, and I know how to roll meshi because my mom taught me and her mom taught her and her mom had taught her all the way back to those original immigrants. You know, incredible the far-reaching effects of Jim Crow because these, these people, there was some tension over their very race, Yes. Yeah. It's interesting when you look into the naturalization court records of when Syrian and Lebanese immigrants around the turn of the century were becoming U.S. citizens, many of them hired lawyers uh, so they could be legally 
identified by the government as white. And that is also the first time we really see that legal definition of whiteness in the United States. And it, you know, like you're mentioning, it had great tension with what was going on in the South at the time. There's many different theories about why they would have wanted to codify that into law. I mean, everyone in my family says they're white. Even my grandmother, who was 100% Syrian, her whole life said she was white. Um, But in my own theory, I have a feeling that those people who came over, they were looking around, like you mentioned, in Jim Crow era New Orleans, and they didn't want to not be white because of how non-white people were being treated, and especially the black community. And by being legally white, they had different access and different inroads to the southern Jim Crow era economies at that time. The economies. So these were very successful people who started very successful businesses and made a lot of money. So tell us about these New Orleans businesses that I don't connect with this at all. Sure, yeah. I mean, I interviewed 15 different participants um, who were descendants of families who came over around the turn of the century and opened up businesses in New Orleans. Many of them had dry goods stores in the French Quarter. Um, Many of them had import businesses where they would import um, olive oil, spices, linens, other dry goods. And a lot of them, like I mentioned before, started off as peddlers and worked and worked and worked until they could save up enough money to have their own storefront. Um, Another hallmark of the Syrian Lebanese American experience in business, um, every member of the family would have been involved in working at the stores. The women were like hard workers and would work in their family businesses and the front counters. Um, And other than that, they would be in the kitchen rolling meshy with all of their sisters and cousins and aunts. It was always a very communal activity. But yeah, as far as the businesses, many of them are still around today in different forms. We have uh, Kelly and Abide. They're Lebanese, Syrian Lebanese. We have um, the Solomons. We have the Abouds. There was an Aboud grocery store in the French Quarter. My great-great-grandparents had the Sliman grocery store. We also had businesses in New Iberia. So you see a lot of like merchants. You see a lot of selling and importing. When did you realize that you had such a special story? So you went to Notre Dame and studied Arabic language. Very interesting. How did the how did the FBI or the CIA not come and recruit you? It's interesting you say that because I did get some calls after did I you? after I got back to New Orleans, mostly from oil companies. Um, but yeah, people always assume that I must want to go into some kind of intelligence or counterintelligence. But <laughs> for me, it was just a way to connect with my roots because we had to do a language at Notre Dame, and I had done a lot of Spanish in my high school, and I just thought I'd give Arabic a try, and I honestly just fell in love with the language and felt in that way very connected to my heritage, which, you know, being a fifth generation, I often feel quite distant and removed from. So you go and live in Jordan. I did. Tell me about that. Oh, it was crazy. I mean, I went um, first to study abroad for four months um, with my, you know, with, with a program of kids. I was the only person who went from my school, but that was amazing. I lived with a host family. I got to attend classes at an amazing university in Amman, um, Princess Sumeya University of Technology. But then more recently, after I finished my master's, I moved back out there um, with a couple friends for about a year. And we just lived and worked and tried to speak Arabic and met people and yeah it was amazing I again it while I can't really travel to Syria right now and you know connect with my roots in that way it did help me feel very close 
I loved the fact that while you were doing that, you discovered an organization that preserves Syrian heritage and cooking. Yeah. I what a guidepost to the work you're trying to do. Tell me about that organization. Yeah, they were a huge, huge inspiration to me. Um, I tried to work with them as much as I could. It was The organization is called Bait City. Um, they have a website where you can order their olive oil and their spices that are all made by Jordanian women. What does that name mean? So Bait City, it just means grandmother's house oh. in Arabic. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's very connected to me because I called my grandmother City and she recently passed away. So yeah, I got to go to grandmother's house for work every day. Um, but I help them out with a little bit of their digital sphere. But what they mainly do to help preserve um, the Syrian cultural traditions is offer cooking classes with these amazing women who just absolutely throw down um, delicious Syrian and Lebanese uh, recipes. And I learned a lot of Arabic from them, lots of, you know, kitchen Arabic. So it was an amazing experience. I wish I could still be there working with them. How terrific you got to come home. And of course, the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is here, which, of course, is a perfect platform for your work. Tell me about the exhibit experience. Yes, so it's called um, A Syrian Lebanese American Kitchen. What I attempted to do with uh, creating the exhibit is to try to capture what a typical Syrian American, Syrian Lebanese American kitchen would have looked like around the turn of the century, trying to pull in artifacts dating back to that time. We have an antique stove. We have an antique ice box. I have my great-great-grandparents' meat grinder, um, which is how they would grind the lamb to make the meshi and the kubeh, the kibbe, um, and lots of other amazing artifacts. And then also just, I, it was it's a great backdrop to display all of the information that I've gathered through my interviews with all of the different um, descendants of those early immigrants. Um, information about language, death, and religious change and immigration experiences through Ellis Island. And yeah, I mean, people to, like all the people I spoke to still have grapevines in their backyard. So you'll see a grapevine collage in the exhibit as well um, because everyone, you know, they still roll their own meshi from their own grapevine. And some people's grapevines they shared with me are even dating back to Syria and Lebanon, that cuttings were brought over around the turn of the century that is still the roots of the vines that they have in their backyards to this day. What a rich and delicious story you uncovered. And at the base of all of this effort and all of this work, what do you hope will grow out of it? That's a great question. Um, I know the reasons that I did it, and it was to f try to feel more connected to my family and my heritage, and especially my city, my grandmother, who recently passed away. She would have absolutely loved this exhibit. Um, but I hope that other people come and realize that, like you've mentioned yourself, that the Syrian Lebanese people have been in New Orleans and have been working hard and influencing Creole cuisine and the New Orleans economy for a long time now. And uh, we're here to stay, uh, and we're we're here to share our delicious recipes and our delicious food with anyone and everyone. And I hope that other people can be inspired to sort of hold on to their own heritage in that way and pass down what's important to them to their descendants. Abby, I can only imagine how proud your city is of the amazing work you've done. I wish she could be at the exhibit too. 
I keep saying that to my mom as, as you know, when I was back working on it. And she was saying, you know, she is there. And she especially is there because I have dedicated um, this exhibit to her. And there is a display um, honoring her memory, showing pictures of her rolling meshi and displaying her cookbook as well. So she's absolutely involved in everything I do in my life, but especially this. Thank you so much for your amazing work and for sharing it with all my Louisiana Eats listeners. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. Abigail Road Pasina is curator and researcher of the exhibit, A Syrian Lebanese American Kitchen now on display at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. What is Lebanese iced tea, and where does it come from? Stay tuned, and we'll fill you in on the origin of this refreshing beverage when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this summer. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is Lebanese iced tea, and where does it come from? Composed of sweetened black tea, a splash of rose water, lemon, and a spoonful of pine nuts, this aromatic iced beverage makes for a welcome addition to any hot summer day. Light and refreshing, Lebanese iced tea also provides a perfect complement to the bright herbs and spices commonly used in Middle Eastern cuisine. 
but don't go looking for it in Lebanon. This drink has the distinction of being invented right here in New Orleans. Nick Monum and Karim Taha are the brothers-in-law behind Mona's Cafe, a successful Middle Eastern restaurant and grocery store that started as a mid-city pita bakery in 1987. When Mona's expanded to become a restaurant in the early 90s, Nick and Karim created a new drink for the menu, one inspired by Jalab, a beloved summertime drink in Lebanon. While their Lebanese iced tea shares Jalab's color, flower water, and pine nut garnish, the recipe is uniquely New Orleans, with its base of iced tea firmly rooted in Southern culture. In the decades since Nick and Kareem's invention was first served, it's become such a hit that Middle Eastern restaurants throughout Louisiana offer their own take on Mona's Lebanese iced tea. And its popularity has been growing across state lines, too. You'll find the drink on menus in Texas and, more recently, Alabama and Mississippi. Who knows where it'll pop up next? I'm Poppy Tooker, and Mona's Lebanese iced tea is real Louisiana tea. In her food blog, Omnivore's Cookbook, Maggie Zhu writes about modern Chinese cooking, Asian-inspired dishes, and classic recipes. Born and raised in Beijing and now based in New York, Maggie's popular blog takes traditional recipes and redesigns them for the Western home chef. For her first cookbook, Chinese Homestyle, Maggie narrows her focus to plant-based dishes. This was motivated in part by her husband, a runner who found that a vegan diet helped him recover faster from training. The focus on homestyle cooking also allowed her to connect to her roots by sharing dishes that her mom made for her as a child. Maggie joined us to talk about Chinese homestyle and share some tips that are as simple as they are delicious. Maggie, we all know that there are a lot of vegetables and a lot of vegetable dishes in Chinese cooking that we're familiar with. Your book, it's all plant-based. It's really Chinese vegan, and that's very unusual, I think. It is a little bit unusual. So um, I think Chinese vegetarian cooking is one of the... Um, how to say, uh, a branch of cooking, mm -hmm. because it's um, quite popular. Uh, it's not, not completely vegan, but vegetarian, because it's, uh, it's called Buddhist cuisine. So it's a type of cuisine that is, uh, you know, among monks and temples and, you know, anyone who want to live like a healthier lifestyle. Uh, but it, yes, the plant-based, like the vegan style Chinese cooking, it is a little bit unusual. I am not vegan myself because, um, I like to eat and cook with everything. Like I, I just love food. Uh, I started this adventure actually with my husband. He is a runner and he trains for a marathon and races. 
So he decided to eat more plant-based. And uh, yeah, we, I mean, we, we cook and share all the food. So I just naturally started to eat more plant-based. And uh, I found that um, pretty amazing because, you know, I, I feel like the food doesn't weigh me down and I can work, I can do exercise immediately after eating. I don't feel like heavy and I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, that's how I um, started to cook more plant-based at home. Well, people who are vegan and vegetarian are probably pretty familiar with tofu. That's a major part of their lives. But it was so interesting, your explanation about freezing tofu and mm -hmm. why. Talk to us about tofu and and explain the nuances that, that you illustrate in the book. Uh, so it's actually a really staple in Chinese uh, cuisine. It's something we actually use daily. You can cook it with meat or protein and vegetables and all of other stuff. It's like a really nice way of adding a source of plant-based protein is pretty healthy and it's very affordable to, to your diet. So the frozen tofu is very interesting. So tofu is pretty much, it's made with, uh, you know, uh, with the, after you make soil, soil milk. So you use a coagulant to um, filter out all the water and you press it and the, all those like protein, they kind of congeal and become a block of tofu. So the more water you press out, the more dense it becomes. So what happens when you put in a freezer, the, the water inside of the tofu started to um, become like an ice cube. And after you thaw it, the water inside of the tofu melt, it gave a lot of porous uh, texture. Mm -hmm. So the tofu become like a sponge. You know, it's like you freeze it and then you squeeze out all the water. And then it become like this really like nice, fun, chewy texture. And when you use that in stew and soups, it just absorb all the flavors. And another great trick that you point out with tofu that I, I loved thinking about is if you just coat it with cornstarch before you fry it, it gives you that crunch, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a really important. I mean, you can directly fry them, but when you add the cornstarch, it gives you like a different, very different texture, like crunchy and crispy. So glad you added that. And there are so many great techniques that you learn in your book. Um, you know, I, I love eggplant. And your recipe for Chinese eggplant with garlic just looks delicious. But the fact that it's not deep fried is very appealing. Yeah. Tell us about how you do that dish instead of the usual deep fry that happens. That's a really great one. That is actually one of the most popular ones. And I've always got comments on my by my readers. They're like, oh, my, my husband doesn't even like eggplant. And I make this and they just love it. Um, eggplant is kind of spongy and it has quite a bit of uh, liquid in it. So uh, when you deep fry them, of course, it gives it a like, really nice texture. But what I do is I cut them into bite-sized pieces and I put them in a um, salted water, soak them for 10, 15 minutes. It kind of like draws some of the moisture out. And after that, you dry the eggplant and then I coat them with a very thin layer of cornstarch. So, you you know, by taking out some of the moisture and by coating with cornstarch, you can pan fry them and it will get this really nice, crunchy, crispy texture without using deep frying. And it, I loved the recipe that you did for spring pancakes. That mm -hmm. is such 
an essential ingredient in your cuisine. And yet, you know, here in the United States, people just think of it as what comes with mushu pork or something. Yeah. You know, they don't yeah. really understand it. Would you talk to us about spring pancakes and your memories of them and and their place in the Chinese cuisine? It's interesting that you mentioned. It is very, very, very important uh, when I was growing up. It's something that, you know, I feel like here you can just go to a supermarket. If You know, if you're lucky enough to have an Asian market, you can get those like mushu pancake or Peking duck pancake. They call them, you know, the, the frozen ones. But when I was growing up, my grandma always make them. And often it's just served with really simple stuff, like a few stir fries and maybe scrambled eggs. Because when you have the pancake, it's freshly made. They just, they knead the dough, they roll it out really thin. So you actually cook them really briefly in the pan, kind of like kind of grill them like a tortilla. Mm -hmm. And then you steam them. So it has this nice tender and chewy texture. And it's so thin, like paper thin and small. And we use it to wrap just with some fried vegetables or like chopped cucumbers or scrambled eggs. And you can add a touch of hoisin sauce. It's just so delicious. I don't ever regard corn as being part of Chinese cuisine, but you have a very interesting dish of stir-fried corn with pine nuts. Tell me about that. So we, we actually eat quite a bit of corn in Northern China. We don't grill corn that much. Usually it's either steamed or boiled and we just enjoy them with very little seasoning. Uh, sometimes it's like chopped up and then we throw in the stew you know, to like to cook with like potatoes and peppers and all that stuff. Uh, so this dish is a really um, kind of special. It's just corn fried with pine nuts and carrots with very simple seasonings. Because, you know, corn and pine nuts, they are just so tasty. It's lightly sweet and nutty. And you just had a touch of seasoning, like a little bit salty, uh, you know, and I use like a little bit cornstarch to thicken it up to bring it together. But it's just like a really nice, refreshing dish. Well, I can't wait to try it. And the grand finale, I was so surprised mm -hmm. to find boba tea. You know, it's such a rage, but I don't know anybody who makes it at home. You can make it at home. It, it takes a bit of time because you do have to get the boba, the, the tapioca pearls. It's, you know, usually sold in a dried form. And you just need to... Uh, boil them and marinate a little bit in the sugar. And the tea itself is really simple. It's pretty much just black tea with milk. So what you want to do is make a very, very strong black tea. And then you add the plant-based milk. And then it just gave you that really nice, strong, fragrant taste with a boba. You demystified so many things for me. And you certainly did that further through this conversation. I can't wait to see the next book. So when it's ready, make sure to send it our way. For sure. Thank you. <laughs> Love to. Maggie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. It was so fun. And thank you for inviting me to the show. Maggie Zhu writes about modern and traditional Chinese cooking for her blog, Omnivore's Cookbook. Her debut cookbook is Chinese Home Style, 
everyday plant-based recipes for takeout, dim sum, noodles, and more. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you're looking for a Poppy's pop-up drag brunch, Join us on the last Sunday of each month through the summertime, June, July, and August at our home away from home, Tujac's Restaurant in New Orleans, French Quarter. You can make reservations and learn more by visiting tujacsrestaurant.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, Dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, Producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>